I want to ask you a question. When you talk to yourself, can you control the volume in your head? I don't know if you're like me. I'm the kind of person that always seems to have a conversation going. Anybody else like that? Anybody else always seem to be talking to yourself? It's like this constant loop, right, of conversation. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Don't forget to go, to go here. Did I turn off the lights? What should I have said in that situation? Should I call that person? Right? There's this in, intense cycle continually going through my mind. But one of the interesting things I've learned as we look at some of the discoveries of neuroscience is that not everybody has an inner monologue. But, but I wonder, for those of us that, that, that when we're speaking and we're reading, can we control the volume in our heads? I want to do a little bit of an experiment. You guys like experiments, I can tell. So we're going to do a little bit of an experiment. Okay, now I want you to, to, to say something internally. Don't, don't say it out loud, okay? I want you to be inside. I want you to scream it, okay? Again, don't yell out loud, okay? It'll be awkward and weird. So you keep it internal, okay? I want you to scream it in your head. I love barbecue. On three, you guys ready? We're going to scream it. I love barbecue because I personally love barbecue. So we're going to scream that in our heads on three. Ready? One, two, three. I hear you guys, seriously. (laughs) Totally agree. Yeah, it's like you're talking out loud to me. Okay, okay, so you guys did that. Now, let's do an experiment number two. I want you to whisper it. I want you to whisper in your mind, okay? I love barbecue. Ready? One, two, three. Somebody whispered. I heard it. (laughs) Okay, so we've yelled and we've whispered. Here's the question. Was the volume any different? One of the things that neuroscience has discovered is that we actually can't control the volume in in our minds when we speak to ourselves, but what we can control is pitch and tone. So what you heard was different than volume. You heard pitch and you heard tone. You know, there's been a lot of work in neuroscience about the way that we speak to ourselves. And what scientists are finding is that uh, there are really three different ways that we speak to ourselves, three different ways that we think to communicate to ourselves. And here's the three. For a lot of us, like myself, we are, we are uh, verbal thinkers, right? And so we're, we're speaking full sentences to ourselves, and we're hearing them, not audibly, but in the part of the brain we're speaking to ourselves, we're hearing what we're saying. We're speaking in words. We're speaking in sentences. But for some of you, you, you guys might be more pattern thinkers. You're thinking in actions. You're thinking in emotions. And some of you, you guys are what they call visual thinkers, where you think in pictures and images. And for a lot of us, we really alternate between all three. But this is how we speak to us. Now, some of us don't hear ourselves at all. We don't have an inner monologue, and chances are, if that's you, you're the person that blurts out what you're thinking without thinking about it, right? <laughs> Anybody out there? You're like, yeah, that's me. You're probably a visual thinker, just so you know. You can, you know, you can thank me for that one later. But there's this idea, like, we speak to ourselves in different ways, but I want to ask the question today, how does God speak to us? See, see knowing that we speak to ourselves internally in different ways, does God do that very same you know, it's interesting, you can have conversations with people who've been following Jesus for a long time. Or you're reading your Bibles, and you do hear stories of that still, small voice. Or maybe God is speaking to somebody audibly, and you think, God, I wish you would speak to me that way. But I wonder, when we just think about this like, big-picture idea of like, how does God communicate with us? What does he do? What does that look like? I think the Bible reveals it in two really special ways. And I think David, King David, really captures this well for us in Psalm 19. Notice what David says in Psalm 19 about the way that God speaks. He says this in Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. He says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out what? Speech. And night 
Tonight reveals knowledge. So David's saying in some way, in some capacity, God is speaking to us through the world, through, through the things that he has made. But notice what David goes on to say just a few verses later in, in verse 7. He says this. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandments of the Lord are, is Pure, enlightening the eyes. What is David saying? David is saying that God, yes, he speaks to us through the world, but he speaks to us through his word. And so we see this big picture, and I think it's beautiful how David shows us, but as we open up God's word and we look through the greater story of the Bible, we see that God is continually speaking to us through two really main ways, the book of nature and the book of the Bible. And so the question is, how do we understand this? As we are trying to, to get better at talking to ourselves and becoming better thinkers, we are trying to understand what God is saying to us. How do we be, be get better at hearing what God is saying through nature and through the word? Well, a few years ago, I saw this flow chart I wanted to show you back at my home church in my hometown, um, and, and I just thought it really jumped out to me, so I modified it a little bit, and I want to show it to you because I think it reveals this concept of, like, how do we hear what God is saying? So notice, first, we see this idea that God is speaking to us, and he's speaking to us through two main ways, right? He's speaking to us through nature and through the Bible, and we have to ask the question, how do we discover what he is saying? And so we have really two main ways that we do that, science and theology. So, so just think about science. What's the definition of science? Well, science is the study of nature, right? Science is the study of the world work. So if God's speaking to us through his world, then science is trying to discover, right, what it can see, what it can understand about nature. But what about the Bible? What about theology? What's theology? Well, in short, theology is the study of God. Well, where does God reveal himself most to us? Well, in, in the book of nature, but also the book of the Bible. So as we start diving into God's word in the book of the Bible, we are studying theology. Now, it seems like there's a conflict that exists in the world we're in. And that conflict is this. That this conflict exists between science and the Bible. That there's just this kind of this fight between science and the Bible, and depending upon where you are right now in life or, or some of your background or, or some of your foundational beliefs and worldview, you guys have experienced this in many different ways. So we see this perceived conflict between science and the Bible, but let me ask you a question. Does it really make sense? See, I don't think it lines up. I, I think it seems that we're off base a little bit with this conflict, and, and here's why. Let me, let me explain. Who are the people doing all the studying of science and theology? Who are the people that are actually doing the study of nature and the word? It's us, isn't it? Aren't we the ones who are actually doing the study? Aren't we the ones who are diving into the science and into the theology? So it seems to me that the conflict really isn't between science and the Bible, but the conflict is between imperfect people. That it's imperfect people that are really having the conflict. It's how we understand because our knowledge is limited in what we see and what we see that God is saying. And here's how we see this play out in life. And some of you have experienced this. We end up finding ourselves in one of two camps. And one camp is saying, hey, keep those bad science guys away from me because I don't want to mess up my faith. And then the other side says, well, keep those silly Bible believers away from me because they don't have a grip on reality. And there's this conflict that exists. But I believe it doesn't have to. That this conflict really doesn't exist. In reality, I think you can actually be a serious Bible person, a serious Christian, and a serious scientist. 
Notice the words of Francis Collins. He was a serious Christian, serious scientist. Notice what he says. He says that the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. And it cannot be at war with itself. Only we imperfect humans can start such battles. And I love that last line, and only we can end them. See, the reality is the conflict isn't between nature and the Bible, because those are the two ways that God reveals it to us. And the conflict really isn't between science and the Bible. The conflict is between ourselves. The conflict is between imperfect people. This is where it exists. And so I guess the question we need to ask is, what if we learned to let nature and science, I'm sorry, nature and the Bible both illuminate each other? What if we allowed them to complement each other? Because the reality is, science is always changing. Just look at your textbooks. Pull out a textbook from 100 years ago. Way different, right? They didn't even know about you know, antibiotics. They didn't know about um, you know, vaccines, and, and we won't go there, but all that kind of stuff. They didn't know about so much. And here we are 100 years later, right? And it's changed so much. What do you imagine the textbooks are look like 100 years from now, right? So just think about that, the way that science changes, but think about the way that we understand the Bible too. Think about the fact that the way that we are growing in our knowledge of what God has to say. Notice what Francis Collins goes on to say. He says that science is the way, a powerful way indeed, to study the natural world. Science is not particularly effective, in fact. It's rather ineffective in making commentary about the supernatural world. Both worlds for me are quite real and quite important, they're investigated in different ways. They coexist. They illuminate each other. So what if we learn to let them illuminate each other and both speak to us and complement each other? What could we really learn then? How many of you uh, learned about Galileo when you were in school? I think most of us know about Galileo, right? I mean, Galileo, for one, is just a cool name, right? If you can name a dog, Galileo, good choice, I think. But think about Galileo. This guy was famous, but he had a lot of conflict in his life because he grew up in a period of time, much like ours, where there was this battle between the Bible and between science. And so if you know Galileo's story, he lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s, and Galileo was a scientist, but he was also a Christian. And there was this belief in the church at the time that the, the Bible taught that the world was the center of the universe. And so it was just, this is what was taught. This is what was understood. This is what we believed. And so Galileo, building on what other scientists have discovered, Galileo says, actually... If we look at the stars, what we see is the world, the earth, is actually rotating around the sun. He took a lot of heat for this. He got blamed for a lot of things. But over time, people began to look and say, you know what? You're right. See, Galileo was able to, to, to help people see that the Bible actually never said anything about the earth being the center of the universe. See, the Bible would say things like, well, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so... Galileo allowed the, God's word to set truth, but also nature to complement it. And because of that, he was able to learn to read his Bible better. So I think for you and me, as we step into this journey of how do we become to hear, how do we learn to become better at having God speak to us, we have to learn to let them illuminate each other and to come and actually see what it is that God is telling us. Because I think when we do, we're going to see that nature what we see in the world actually complements what God has said in the Bible. So last week we kick off this new series, and we're diving into Genesis, and we're starting off at like the most controversial topic you can get to, right? Creation. And we come to this with 21st century questions. So you and me in our modern 21st century minds come and we say, God, I want to know how. I want to know 
when. I don't know exactly what you did. But I think what God is saying is, I want to teach you something bigger. I want to reveal something more beautiful to you. But for us to get it, we have to understand that the Bible was written for us and not to us. And so we have to look at the context of who the Bible was written to so we can begin to unfold the beauty of what God is actually, truthfully telling us. How many of you played the, code na- the game Code Names? Anybody played this game before? It's a fun game. I got a picture of it. So if you play the game, the game Code Names, you know, uh, you, you have a partner and you sit across the table and you, um, if you're on this side of the, of the table, you have to throw out words so your partner can guess what you're trying to say. And what you'll notice is when you play these games, you're usually playing with your spouse because you can say things in context that your spouse is going to understand. So you look here and you see powder and you see glacier and these kind of things. And I could tell Courtney, I could look at Courtney and say, ski trip. And Courtney's going to know in context, we went on a ski trip. And so she's going to look at the cards and see powder and see glacier and these kind of things. And you can win the game. But you really are going to have trouble playing a game like Codenames unless you can understand context. And so for us, this is the journey we're on as we start Genesis chapter 1. We're reading a book that was written thousands of years ago to a people who grew up in the ancient Near East, who we don't have very much in common with at all. And we're looking and we're, we're seeing this, this picture that, that God is giving us. Uh, he's writing to a people that were a pre-scientific culture that didn't know anything about the, the earth uh, spinning around the sun, who had no idea that the moon and the, the sun were not the exact same size and the same distance away, who had no idea if you eat some weird cactus, you might feel weird and see really weird colors for eight hours. There's just all kinds of things they didn't know that we might know today. And, and so we have to ask that question. What do we have in common in context with these ancient Near East people? And the answer is not much. You know, the Egyptians, many of you I'm sure have seen a sarcophagus and have, have in the museum seen mummification and all these kind of things. Well, what's interesting is when they would mummify a body, they would pull out all the organs except the heart. See, the Egyptians believed that the heart was where you made your decisions. That the heart was actually where your intentions lied. So they would suck your brain out and throw it in the trash, but they would leave your heart. You know, there's no word in the, old, in the Hebrew for the word brain. It's, it's this ancient Near East thinking. That's very different than us today. And, and so when we approach it, we have to approach this understanding of saying, God, what are you saying to this people? And what are you saying to us? And I believe as we do that, we're going to see that, that God wasn't teaching science to these these ancient Near East readers, God was teaching theology. And so I want us to approach this and and understand that we have to come not asking how, but what God wants us to ask is who, and God wants us to ask why. So as we open up Genesis 1, and we're going to hustle to get through Genesis 1 today. As we open up Genesis 1, let's ask that question. God, if what you're trying to show us is who and why, then what were you trying to say to these readers 3,500 years ago, and what are you trying to say to me today? All right, grab your Bibles. Genesis 1, starting in verse 1, and as we flip there, let's pray and ask God to give us the endurance to get through this chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much for this time and this opportunity for us to to look back in 2022 and to look back 3,500 years and to, to see, Lord, what you put to paper for us to understand about you and how you reveal yourself to us in nature, but also in your word, and how we can learn to let those complement each other 
And so we can see, Lord, that you set the starting point, but let's not discount the fact that your world is teaching us so much that enlightens our minds and helps illuminate what your word already has said to us. Father, today we know we've got several families who are really walking through hard times. We pray for the Millard family. We pray for Mark as he's been battling some health challenges, Lord. We also pray for the Millards as they've been battling COVID. And so, Lord, we pray for them. Father, we pray for Nora Dorn as she goes in tomorrow um, to have, um, Lord, to have um, her cancer removed, Lord. And we just pray for a quick recovery. Uh, Lord, we pray for steady hands from the doctors and nurses tomorrow uh, to, Lord, bring her, through, bring her through this and help her feel great in the coming days. Father, we also pray for the Herrera and the Ortiz family, Lord, as just the, the season they're walking through. And I just pray, Lord, that you just uh, draw close to them and, and show them how much you love them, that you care for them. Uh, Lord, we pray for the Robal family, the Robal family, Lord, and uh, just specifically lift up Pete to you today, Lord, and, uh, and with his health. And, and Father, all of those unspoken prayers that we have in our families and in our communities and in this world, Father, we um, just ask that you move and that you guide us and you direct us and that you stir us up so much today that we leave looking more like Jesus than when we came. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. Okay, so imagine you grow up in Egypt. You, you were born an Israelite, but you grow up in an Egyptian culture. And in this culture, you don't know a whole lot, but you've got some stories about your ancestors and your families. But the culture you're in, they're teaching you a lot about their creation story. And so you find yourself in this Egyptian culture, and you begin to learn this creation story. I've got a slide to, to give you. Some of these names are a little tricky. So, so I'm going I'm to walk you through this real quick, and then I'm going to come back to it. So you, you grow up in Egypt, and you learn that they believe that the world, the way they look at nature, and they think, well, this was created, and this had to get here somehow. We need to figure that out. They believe that there was a, uh, the, the world started off with just this endless dark water. There was nothing but dark waters. And then there was a god uh, named Atum who spoke himself out of the water, and a tomb would later become Ra, the sun god, the most powerful god in Egyptian culture. And so they believe that this dude named a tomb, who looked like a phoenix kind of guy, spoke himself out, and now he is the creator god. And so he was in control of heaven and earth. And now this Atum dude that looks kind of like a phoenix creates twins, Shu and Tefnut, which... These names are weird, right? Tefnut, right? So Shu and Tefnut. And so the idea is that Shu and Tefnut are different kinds of water. Right? Or Shu is like air, right? And um, Tefnut is like moist air. So dry air and, and moist air. So you have Shu and Tefnut. And, and now you have this kind of picture of the world starting to form. And then from there, they had twins, Geb and Nut. Again, Weird, right? Weird names. Geb and Nut. And so what, what we see is that when the waters subsided, now Geb is dry earth, and Geb is the place where Ra, or the phoenix, could rest. And so this is how they explain the world coming to be. If you were going to explain it, you'd probably do it a little differently, but this is how they explained it. So now imagine you are an Israelite growing up in Egypt, and you hear this story. This is all you've ever heard, really. You've heard some other stuff about, about this god that was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you really don't get it. You don't know what that means. And so you grew up in this culture. And then one day, this dude named Moses rolls into town and brings these plagues with him. The Pharaoh lets you guys leave, and now you're in the wilderness. And you're wandering around, and you're trying to figure out what is going on. And so then Moses, trying to explain, to give you some context for what you're doing and, and who you are, is going to write a book called Genesis. And he's going to tell you where you came from. 
And so what I want you to see is what God does. God has this beautiful way of teaching us the who by using things that we know. See, God loves to use context and things in your own life to make sense of things that might be really hard to understand if we didn't have a vantage point. So what God's going to do, I want you to see this in the first, first um, few chapters of Genesis 1, is he's going to take this picture that the Egyptians would have known, the Egyptian creation myth, and he's going to add context to it so the Israelites can see actually who he is. So, so notice, this is, this is really cool. Um, notice here, verse 1, God is going to say, hey, I know you understand, you heard this happen, but let me set the story straight. And let me tell you what really happened. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. God says, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And we talked about this last week. God says, the very beginning, there wasn't some dark water. There was nothing but me. And I created the world out of nothing. Do you guys remember the word we learned last week, the, the Latin word? Ex nihilo. Say that again. Ex nihilo. It's the idea that God created out of nothing. So guys, let me tell you, God's saying, there was nothing, and then I created everything you see. Now, go back here. Verse 2. Notice what he says. And he says, the, the, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God says, look, I know you heard that there was dark water, and there was this weird phoenix-like sun god named Ra who was hovering over the waters. But let me tell you, that wasn't true. I created the water, and I am the one that was hovering to bring life and order to the chaos. Verse um, verse 3, God is starting to say, I want you to, to see that I'm going to take what you know and I'm going to redirect it so it makes sense. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light because it was dark. And there was light. And God says in verse 4, and God said that the light was good and, the God, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now this is really cool. Notice what God is doing. God is saying in Egyptian culture, Ra, the sun god, it, which if you've ever seen uh, Stargate, you, you, you guys can get a picture, right, for, for Ra. Like that, you know, it's kind of a cool mask and, you know, it looked a little Star Wars-y. But this idea that Ra was their guy. So he's saying that Ra sun god that you think it was, you heard was the creator god. Let me tell you, he's actually not real. See that sun? I created it. That sun you see? It's nothing more than light. It's not a God. It's not anything. It's something that I created and I set in the sky. See, God is revealing power. Okay, notice next. Remember that the Egyptians believed that sky and water were separated by these twin gods, Shu and Tefnut, and that Geb and Nut, these, these names again. Geb and Nut was the dry land and the sky. Notice what God says next. Look at verse 6. God says, and God, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters so that they were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. A lot of repetition. Moses liked repetition. And it was so, in verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven, sky, and, God, and, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. Then let dry land appear, and it was so. So God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was what? Good. God saw it was good. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in what is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruits in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was 
good. And there was evening and morning the third day. Okay, you see what God is doing. Like you see the pattern of what God is doing here. God is, is saying, so the Egyptians, they grew up in this belief that, that they had these little gods and these gods just managed all these things like the, the, the sky and the ground and the water and, and the earth and all these things. And you wanted to make sure you didn't make those little gods mad because then they would make it really hard on you. They'd withhold rain and they'd make your crops not grow and all these things. And God is saying, look, all of that that you grew up hearing about these little gods, it's, they're not real. Instead, I'm the one that created all this. And I'm the one that is in control of all of this. And I am the one who is governing the sky and the stars and the oceans and the world. God is saying, I am in control. So when we look at God's word and we say, God, what are you trying to say to me? What are you trying to say in Genesis 1? And Genesis 1 is going to say a lot to us. But I think one of the main things God is saying to us is God speaks to, res to reset our perspectives. See, the, these Israelites grew up in Egypt, and they had this, this mythology placed all around them. And God is speaking to them to let them know, who I, this is who I am. I am the God that created all this. I am the one that's in control. I am your God. I'm the one that rescued you out of Egypt. So let me tell you something about me. And he uses imagery that they would have already understood to help make sense of it. And so God says, I want to reset your perspective. And don't we all really need our perspective reset from time to time? I mean, I don't know about you, but I tend to look at the way the world works, and I make my own assumptions about how this works. And i got to remember that I'm making assumptions based from an on a position of imperfect knowledge. And so I can't make true understanding of that. That's why I need God's word to help illuminate and complement what I'm seeing and how the way the world works. And this is why we need God's word to reset our perspective. Just think. Just think for a second. Let me get back on the science Bible conflict. Just think for a moment. If science... Rather than trying to spend all of its energy and time trying to discover how we got here and how it all started, but started from a vantage point of God is the one that created it, how much further would we be along? How much more would we know? How much would our knowledge of what God's word and science have discovered of nature complement each other? I think it would be so, so improved. It would be vastly different. See, I think God is trying to reset our perspective, and he does the same for us. Because you and I, as Jesus' followers, as Christians, we need our perspective reset. Because we look at the way the world works and we say, mm, well, this must be true. See, how many of you have ever said or heard somebody say something like, well, God helps those who help themselves, right? Well, I just got to get myself out of this mess because God's going to help me once I prove to him I'm worthy. Well, I, I prove to him that I can do the effort. Prove to him that I can just tighten my boots up and I can get out of this mess. Then God's going to bless me. See, God says, no, 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 let my word reset your perspective. You can't help yourself, but you know who can? Me. I came to help you. He says in Isaiah 25, 4, for you have, Isaiah saying this about God, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, and a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. God's word says, no, no, you, you're never going to be able to help yourself. Let me help you. Let me be the one who's in control. Trust me that I know what's good. How, how many of you have said things like, well, if, if I can just get better, if I can just do a better job, if I can just follow God better, then he'll love me more. Like God's just waiting for me to move. He's just waiting for me to react. But then God says, no, no, no. Let me reset your perspective. Ephesians 2.8, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It's not works. It's nothing you have done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You can't do anything to make God love you more. But because God loves you, you can respond in faithfulness and in obedience and follow him with a full heart. See, God is always trying to reset our perspective, and that is what his word does. And so for you and me, we might read this, this Genesis 1, and it makes no sense to us because we have no idea about an Egyptian creation myth. But it's like digging. The further you dig, the more beautiful things you will find. And as we die, dive into God's word, we're going to have our aha moment. The Egyptians had their aha moment. But God is speaking something to us here in Genesis 1, trying to help reset our, ex- our perspectives for us to see that he is in control and that he is the one who is the creator of everything and guiding everything and bringing order to everything. So here's the question. What could God be saying to you through Genesis 1? God may not be correcting some view of creation, but God might be speaking to you, trying to tell you that he is in control. God might be trying to to reveal to you that maybe you have a wrong perspective that you developed on your own and you need to let God's word drive you to the truth. What is God saying to you? What is Genesis 1 revealing to you? How does God want his word to illuminate your world? But but notice, I want you to also see that God isn't just writing to us to show us who, but God's also writing to us to show us how. Notice this. Notice this. This is is really cool. Verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. See, when we read that with 21st century questions, we go, God, how did that work? How did you say let there be light, but yet there's no stars and there's no sun and there's no moon? And how does any of that make sense? But God says, don't ask how. Ask why. And so he's saying, I'm going to tell you why. God is resetting our view. God is saying, look, let me tell you why I created all these things. I created the the heavens and the sky to separate day from night. I created the stars because they're for signs and for seasons. The sun to give you light during the day. The moon to give you light during the night. Do you see what God is doing? God is telling us why. He's telling us that he's creating with purpose. See, God is telling that he created time. And he's saying, the reason I gave gave light was so I could give it a purpose, and that purpose is to give you light so you can see, to move around, and live your life, and to tell time. He is giving purpose to the things that he's made. See, you and I do this all the time, we don't even realize it. Last year for Emma's birthday, my oldest Emma, she's going to turn 10 next week, we bought her a piano. And anybody who's ever bought a piano, you know it comes in a box that's like the size of a refrigerator, right? <laughs> like, why do we need a box this big? So anyway, so we get this piano, we take the box to the garage, and Emma takes some markers and some scissors and goes out to the box and starts drawing it up, right? Turns it into a race car. Now, what is that box? It's just cardboard, right? Then it's cardboard with markers on it. But when Emma and her sisters go get in that and a boxcar derby starts, what is that box? It's a race car. Why? Because it was given purpose. We do that all the time in life. You can create something. How many of you have built something and then put it in the garage or put it in the storage and never touched it? You created something, but you never gave it purpose. God says, I create. 
but then I give it purpose. I created the light, the stars, and the moon, and the skies, and I gave it purpose for us. Notice, notice what else he says next. This is so good. God is, I say, I give purpose to what I create. Look at verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to the kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And then there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. See, God is saying, I created the skies and I created the oceans, not just for pictures and not just for Facebook and Insta posts, not just so they can be something pretty to look at, but for the birds to fly and the fish to swim. I created and then I filled it with life to give it purpose. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to its kinds, to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. God says, I created the dry ground for life, for creatures and for creeps. <laughs> purpose, purpose. He's creating with purpose. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Ooh, that's good. Tune in Tuesday. We'll talk about that. Cliffhanger. God said, let's make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and all of the earth and over everything that creeps, thing, thing, creeping things that creeps on the earth. And so God said, let's create people and let's give them dominion and let's give them rule over all the things I created. What is God saying? God is saying, I give purpose. The things that I create, I give purpose, and I give meaning, and I created mankind, and I gave it the biggest purpose, and that's to govern and rule my world. So come back next week, and we're going to talk about that, because that's such a big one. But notice verse 31, and God says this, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very what? Good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So God gives us these six days of creation. And in these six days of creation, he's telling us who made it, and he's telling us why. But why don't you see something? I want you to notice this purpose, this meaning. I've got a slide I want to show you. So some of you maybe have seen this before. But this is, this is the pattern that God has used for creation. I want you to notice this. On days one, two, and three, God created. And on days four, five, and six, God is telling us what he did with that creation. And he created life. And he filled it. And he gave it purpose. God gave purpose to day one by creating this time and light. God gave purpose to day two by giving the, the water fish and the sky, sea, the sky birds. God created purpose by giving the grassy earth that he made, giraffes and monkeys and all kinds of creepy things. God gives purpose what he creates. And so this means that when God speaks to us through his word and through his world, that what God is doing is he's revealing that he gives us purpose and meaning. Why does God speak to you? To tell you that you're valuable, to tell you that you're worth it, to tell you that you have a purpose and a meaning to your life. And I think forefront, this is really powerful when we get this. 
Because the implications of this are, are huge. Because here's the reality. If you take God out of the equation, you take God out of creation, and you say all of this is just here from some random chance, then you, you pull out purpose and you pull out meaning. And you can't make sense of any of it. It's like Rick Warren says. He says, without God, life has no purpose. And without purpose, life has no meaning. And without meaning, life has no significance or hope. But when we allow God's word to illuminate God's world, we see that in Genesis 1, God is telling us a very different story. And in Genesis 1, God is telling us that I created the world and I gave purpose and meaning to what I created. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that when you say yes to Jesus, you become a new creation. So, so just like God takes light and gives it purpose to tell time, God takes your life and gives you purpose and meaning in everything you do. And this is, this is huge because this, life, this means your life has value. And this means your life has meaning. This means that when your career got sidetracked, or, or that, your, that your job that you had went to school for and you worked really hard for and you put so much time and effort into this organization and it went into the ditch. And you think, why did I do all that? Why did I give that time? Why do I even care? God says, because there's meaning to it. Because there's value to it. Because there's a purpose to it. This means when you get that bad diagnosis on your health, and you're really scared and you're really worried. And you think, why even try? What, what, what's the point? God says, don't forget, I'm in control. And I'm going to give purpose and I'm going to give meaning to this journey you're on. And this means when your relationships are hurting, when you're struggling, and you're just wanting to throw up your hands and say, why even keep trying? God says, don't give up. Because there's value and there's purpose and there's meaning to everything I create. See, when we get that forefront, when we understand what God is saying to us through his word and through his world, it, it brings everything to life for us. And we may not know what that purpose is right now. That, that purpose may, may be because God is going to reveal something to us down the road. That purpose, We might look back in hindsight and say, wow, God, you did it again. If I could only start seeing it in the moment. That purpose may be for somebody else who's watching your life, who's watching you go through that health battle, who's watching how you respond to being let go from work, who's watching your relationship struggles. This may be for them so they can see, wow, following Jesus really does matter and it really does make a difference. So the question I want you to ponder as we leave here today and we go into life this week is, what is God saying to you right now? What is God revealing to you in Genesis 1 that wants to reset your perspective? And how is God revealing to you that he's bringing meaning and purpose to the struggles that you're walking through? Because as we saw in Genesis 31, 131, God said, I looked out on everything I made and I saw that it was good. For friend, God doesn't make anything that isn't good. And he doesn't do any of this by accident. But he calls us into something bigger and more beautiful if we would only look for it. I want to invite the worship team back on stage. And I just want to take a moment, wherever we are right now, and, and I know across this room, you guys are all walking through different situations and different seasons and battling different challenges. But I want us to ask God, God, 
how are you bringing purpose and meaning into this season? See, maybe for some of you, you're in a great season. Things at work are going great. Things in a relationship couldn't be better. How is God using you to bring meaning and value and purpose in the season you're in? For some of us, we're walking through really hard seasons, dark night of the soul seasons. But God is speaking to us in Genesis 1. He's saying, this isn't for naught. I'm revealing something beautiful to you. So I just want to take a moment, and I just want to pause right here. And I just want to pray. And as we do, I want you to ask, God, where do I need to reset my perspective? And God, where do I need to begin to see purpose and meaning in my life?